it's not a matter of if, when the next war comes around, it's just a matter of when. And I had the opportunity because of JSOC to interact with Rangers and Delta and SEALs and kept up those collaborations, worked and deployed with JSOC during that time still. And so I had a lot of interactions with troops that were going out and, and doing a lot of different things. We were very focused on stopping bleeding, right? It's the number one potentially preventable cause of death. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. John Holcomb to War Docs. Dr. Holcomb received his medal degree from the University of Arkansas and trained in general surgery at the William Beaumont Army Medical Center in El Paso, Texas. He later completed a fellowship in surgical critical care at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston, Texas. He was the commander of the United States Army Institute of Surgical Research at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and was the trauma consultant to the Army Surgeon General. After retiring from the Army, Dr. Holcomb served as director of the Center for Translational Injury Research at UT Medical School in Houston for 10 years. He currently is Professional Surgery Division of Acute Care Surgery at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel, Dr. John Holcomb to Wardox. John, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Dr. Holcomb, you graduated medical school from the University of Arkansas in 1985. What brought you to military medicine? Yeah, well, I had no money, man. My family is from Arkansas. I had three jobs all the way through college and uh, scholarships. And then I got accepted to medical school, which was my goal. I remember getting that letter thinking, this is great. And then the realization I had no way to pay for it. Uh, hit me pretty hard. My family didn't have uh, funds at that time. My dad was in the Army and had spent 23 years as an Army officer. And so applying to HPSP was somewhat of a natural thing for me to do. I didn't apply to the Air Force or Navy because my dad was in the Army. And they said yes. And I was pretty happy about that. So you wound up doing a general surgery internship at William Beaumont. But then before continuing the residency program, you went out as a general medical officer to Turkey. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and and did you feel prepared for what you were asked to do? You know, my general surgery internship was, as you said, in El Paso at William Beaumont. It was a great general surgery internship, but it did not prepare me for being a GMO in northern Turkey. (laughs) I was not happy about being a GMO, not getting picked up and having to go out. I told the personnel officer, I don't care where you send me. I want to be out one year so I can come back. He says, Doc, I got a place for you. How about Turkey? And I didn't know where Turkey was. And so I had to look it up on a map. Ended up uh, Sinop, Turkey is on an extinct volcano stuck out in the Black Sea. And I I will tell you, it's one of the best assignments I've had in my entire military career. I actually loved it. I took care of um, three-month-old babies to 85-year-old men, retirees who were living on the economy. And I gave that guy gold shots for his rheumatoid arthritis none of which I did as a general surgery intern. So I had three books. I had a pediatric book. I had a medicine book and a surgery book on my desk. And when the patients came in, I didn't know what to do. I'd open the book right in front of them. We would figure it out. The saving grace there was uh, Sergeant First Class James Reynolds. 
who was the NCOIC of the clinic, I pretty quick, quickly figured out that I needed to do whatever he said and things would be okay. And were you the only medical provider or was there a PA or respect? So, no, I was, uh, I was the doc. Sergeant Reynolds was a flight medic. We had a pharmacy tech, you know, and a couple other medics. And uh, that was it. We did a lot of figuring out how to do things on the fly. So in 1991, you had completed your general surgery residency and then were stationed at Womack in support of special operations units. And your vacation plans were canceled and you deployed to Mogadishu, Somalia and helped provide medical care. And as many people may know, the Black Hawk Down story. Tell us what you learned during what you thought was a peacekeeping mission that turned to a nonstop mission operating on casualties for over 48 hours. Yeah, I was halfway through my general surgery chief resident year, and I got a call from a buddy of mine at Fort Bragg, Steve Jones, who had graduated a year ahead of me. He said, hey, I got this good job for you. I said, what is it? I can't tell you. I said, well, do I get to operate? He said, yes. I said, okay, good, I'm in. And then I got assigned to JSOC at Fort Bragg, was issued as a chief resident because a lot of the guys were going out to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. When I got there in July, started doing exercise deployments with those units, pretty quickly realized that my experience as a general surgery resident had not prepared me for deploying with the best forces that the U.S. military has. And, you know, a year and a half, two years later, I did have my, my beach house canceled again for the second time, and by the way, with a pretty nice young lady that we were going to have a good time and ended up in Somalia in support of the forces. I actually had an ingle hernia repair four, four days earlier, laparoscopic ingle hernia repair, and then got deployed. I got off the C-141 and ran a couple miles. Thought I was going to bunk down for the night and end up operating all night long. That was my uh, introduction to Somalia. So the public mission was to do uh, peacekeeping. The, the mission that the JSOC team was for was to degrade uh, the infrastructure, the clansmen there that were causing all the problems. It was pretty violent most of the time. So take us through that experience. You said you got off the airplane four days later. Take us through how you got settled and then what happened. So as a surgeon, my place was to operate, right? And so the combat support hospital was up there. I introduced myself to the commander and he offered that I would uh, say in a tent that was falling down. I declined that offer. We, with a couple of other guys from the unit, we uh, scrounged up a GP medium we found lights, we found plywood for the floor and some cots. We had pretty quickly had the best setup in the whole base, which was pretty popular with the nurses at the time. And, and we played a lot of volleyball. We operated quite a bit. We went over to the Turkish folks across the fence and drank Rocky with them, which was against general order number one. So, you know, the Somalia episode, like a lot of different things, wasn't all combat surgery. There was a good friends were made, interactions with the UN forces a lot of volleyball, several parties, and then a lot of operating on really sick, sick folks. So on that day, we had talked previously to Major General Volpe, who told us that your assets, surgical assets had been degraded somewhat because someone had to be evacuated soon before that episode. So you were already down some personnel. What hit you when that happened? And what did you know was going on as soon as these casualties started coming in waves. Yeah, so the morning of the Mass Cal, 3-4 October, we actually had a, a mine blew up some of our guys that was in a uh, Jeep. And so we were operating that morning on them. And we were also operating on a little girl, a Somali girl, who had kind of ran her face or the, and armored personnel carry had run over her. She had a bunch of facial fractures. So the orthopedic surgeon, I, John Horchek, 
opened a book of anatomy, right, for face for facial bones and fixed her facial fractures with the AO set from the manufacturer set for the ortho. You know, I think that um, epitomizes a lot of things that goes on in a combat support hospital. She wasn't going to have her face fixed unless we fixed it. We didn't have the facial fracture set that you would have back or the knowledge or the experience, but we knew anatomy and we had some hardware we could fix her. So that was going on all morning. The, uh, we had contact by radio with Phil Volpe, who was Lieutenant Colonel Volpe at the time. And so we had some heads up that things were going on and that things had gone south with the helicopters getting shot down and kind of on and on. And, and we had a heads up to expect casualties. Several days before that, one of the 10th Mountain soldiers had really gotten eaten by a shark waiting in waist-deep water right off the shore, which, as it turns out, several other soldiers in, pre in previous iterations of the deployment had as well. Those, they, uh, the soldier came in, was, we ended up with a double amputee and sent him on to Germany. But the Air Force had not developed CCAT at the time, critical carrier transport teams. And so the standard at that time, and this has been way since Vietnam, was that the losing hospital had to not only provide the medication, but the medical support. So he, the soldier was intubated. So an RT tech, the only trauma-trained critical care surgeon, had to leave along with a nurse. So a three-person team took that one soldier up to Germany. And then pretty shortly after that, that's when the, the mass cal kind of start, kept up. So one of the four general surgeons, I think 25% of the, of the RT techs and one of the critical care nurses were not present because of that. That episode with Colonel Volpe's leadership uh, interacting with General Carlton at the time, who was the one star at uh, Wolford Hall, those two guys with that episode and then with General Garson driving it through the Air Force created the impetus for the critical care air transport teams that were so successful, you know, several years later in, in the Gulf. Now, were there other UN surgeons that were there or were you three American surgeons? That was it. Yeah. So three American surgeons, Tony Campbell, myself and John Horchek. So two general surgeons and one orthopedic surgeon. As it turns out, we had all trained together at William Beaumont Army Medical Center, which was pretty interesting. It actually was very nice because we knew each other really well. We knew each other's strengths and weaknesses and capabilities. There were other surgeons who showed up principally from the Germans in the middle of the Mascal. And honestly, I was a young major. I, I was, my job was to operate. Uh, I was in any command position at all, but the certain those guys showed up and helped in the midst of the mass count. They were greatly appreciated. We had done, because we'd been there for a while, we had reached out to the surgeons in the UN compound, and we had case conferences, if you will, where we presented cases back and forth to each other. So we all kind of knew each other as we talked about cases and how they could be something that I think is really important and I've tried to carry through is in subsequent deployments in other places. It's easy to get in that silo, right? And if you reach out to these other guys, uh, they'll come help when you need help. So did that experience impact your decision for future career choices in Army medicine? How did that influence? Yeah, I had at that time, I think it took four signatures to get out of the Army. I had three of them already done. I actually interviewed to um, out in Farmington, New Mexico, which up in the northwest corner of New Mexico. I was going to be the fourth of a three certain group in Farmington, New Mexico, 100-bed hospital. My goal was to be kind of a uh, general surgeon taking care of patients out in Farmington. I actually had a contract in hand. I'd interviewed there twice. I came back from that experience and it kind of turned my career in 180 degrees and helped focus my research out. I had not done any research at that time. And we had a lot of soldiers bleed to death that were very frustrating. I kind of came back and said, you know, we need to figure out better ways to stop bleeding. And yeah, it 
turned my career 180 degrees. So you had mentioned that you had this continuous 48 hours of surgery and what we now would consider the previous generation's surgical care, because now we've modernized so much more with not only the input that you have, but other people since the Somali event. What are the memorable cases that you have from that event that you say, I remember that case and that particular case shaped how I thought about battlefield medicine from that point forward? Yeah, you guys have deployed. Many cases are frankly uh, kind of cut and dried, right? There's a lot of uh, irrigation, debridement of wounds. Most cases on the battlefield are, are not that difficult, frankly. Some of them are. You know, you don't remember the good, the, the cases that turn out well. You remember the cases that don't turn out well. And uh, I, one of the cases was a uh, 10th Mountain soldier who had a retropatic cable injury and uh, came in talking. And we were able to do total paddock exclusion fix his injury to his cava uh, behind his liver. He uh, subsequently died in Germany. And uh, I talk about that case all the time. Another young soldier had his left hip, left, left leg blown off at the hip. He had no injuries to his head, chest, upper abdomen. His injuries were confined to his pelvis and this traumatic hip disarticulation from an RPG. Those are the two cases that I think about a lot. I think both of them would be alive today. and. I wish we could have done better. So following your assignment at uh, Fort Bragg, you went back to El Paso uh, in the early or mid-90s, 94 to 97, and you were still affiliated with the special operations community. Any particular cases or experiences from that time in your career? You know, what I did, what what I was able to do at, at uh, coming back as faculty at William Beaumont during that time was establish a uh, research lab. The I deployed with JSOC, but when you're not at Fort Bragg, you're not on the, the blowout team that blows out four hour notice. And uh, so you backfill quite a bit and do exercises, which is fine. But I was able to establish a research lab focused on stopping bleeding. And uh, we started working with liver injury. We started working with fibrinogen based dressings. I was able to team up with a young PhD named Tony Pusateri with a vet named Harris, Lieutenant Colonel Harris, and with a technician, Army technician, vet tech. So we had a little core group there that started working on better ways to stop. And in addition, obviously, to teaching the residents and being part of the faculty, uh, learning how to teach residents, learning how to be a young faculty member. Marty Schreiber and I met at the time as well. He came down and we worked together in the lab and worked together clinically. And, you know, Marty Schreiber and I remain great friends and very close. I talked to him today. In 1997 to 2001, he then moved on to Brook Army Medical Center. And in addition to being a surgeon, you were also working as the chief of military trauma research at the U.S. Army Institute of Surgical Research. What important research was going on that time, which importantly was prior to 9-11? Yeah, the work that we did at William Beaumont, I presented at some of the early ATAC meetings, which is now MHSRS, and got the attention of Major General Parker, who was commander of MRMC at the time, General Parker is a thoracic surgeon. He invited our team from William Beaumont to come up to and present to MRMC headquarters on hemorrhage control with a hemostatic dressing that we had worked with the Red Cross on. And he said, Malcolm, I want you to move to ISR and do the same research. And I said, sir, you got to move my team, right? Because this team we put together was really high, pretty high functioning and they didn't have a similar team at ISR at the time. And so he actually did that. He moved all of us. And when I got to the ISR, they were doing burn research, which they've been doing for a long time, but no hemorrhage control research. 
So we were the first ones to do hemorrhage control research and resuscitation work there. It was great because it was wide open. They had operating rooms that were fabulous. Uh, they were really empty. And uh, within six months, we had uh, multiple different animal experiments going on and were able to be uh, really productive in addition to taking trauma call at BAMSI. So it was allowed me to expand a little bit my horizons, work with uh, more PhDs, Jill Sandin, Mike Dubik, and those guys who were already there and really create a, a very collaborative and productive effort focused on stopping bleeding and optimal resuscitation. So prior to 2001, 9-11, how did you know that some of that research that you were doing in animals would be translatable to the battlefield? Were, were there opportunities to test? Yeah, in my experience in Somalia, although brief, obviously made a big impression on me. And I started reading and talking to folks like Ron Bellamy and Howard Champion. Ron was obviously was very active in, in uh, Vietnam and from a research point of view and data collecting point of view. Howard was a civilian trauma surgeon. At that point, I had met Captain Frank Butler, a U.S. SOCOM surgeon who was starting tactical combat casualty care at the time. And it was very clear that we, you know, it's not a matter of if when the next war comes around, it's just a matter of when. I think we're seeing that again today. That was our attitude. And I had the opportunity because of JSOC to interact with Rangers and Delta and SEALs and kept up those collaborations, worked and deployed with JSOC during that time still. And so I had a lot of interactions with troops that were going out and, and doing a lot of different things. We were very focused on stopping bleeding. Right? It's the number one potentially preventable cause of death. And then reading Bellamy's work and then adding uh, new stuff. You know, Bob Mabry wrote, the, the paper that came out of the Somalia episode was very clear that stopping bleeding was important. Sounds kind of crazy to say, right? But at the time, the hemorrhage control device that soldiers were carrying was a, a gauze dressing, which hadn't changed since the Civil War. And tourniquets really were not there at all, right? They were not available. So we figured we'd work on a better way to stop bleeding with dressings. That's what we talked a little bit with uh, Russ Kotwal, and he was telling us that you know, early on, there weren't any great ways to capture the data in the field. How were you able to get that data to see if it worked in real life? Well, before 9-11, we didn't. You know, the other thing that happened during that time is we were able to interact in San Antonio with the San Antonio civilian trauma system. And, and that interaction during that time for me was really important. If you move forward 2003, in 2002, I then uh, went and did a fellowship and uh, before that started a training program in, in Houston with rotating teams through, but then went and did a fellowship right before I came back to the ISR. And then General Peak sent me to the battlefield as the trauma consultant in 2003 and was able to travel around north, south, east, and west in Iraq about four to six weeks after we crossed the berm. Combat support hospitals were set up, you know, as far north as Missoula and then all the way down south. We were able to visit all of those, plus the level twos, the FSTs, and then spent a lot of time with the medics. It was very clear that we had people working really hard, doing the best they could, but there wasn't good communication between levels of care. Charts and data didn't go between levels of care, and there was no coherent trauma system. So with a number of people, Don Jenkins, Brian Eastridge, Peter Ree, folks like that, and Doug Robb at CENTCOM, who was the command surgeon there, were able to put together, based upon our experience, you know, we were now lieutenant colonels and colonels, based upon our experience in the civilian world, able to put those elements of the trauma system in place on the battlefield. 
a, key, a core principle of the trauma system is a trauma registry and trauma research. And, and so we were able to implement all of that on the battlefield. So let's dive into that 2001 time period a little bit where you became the first director of the Joint Trauma Training Center at Ben Tobin Hospital in Houston. Tell us why that was important at the time and the development of combat trauma training and simulation at that center in Houston. Why was it thought to be important in the pre-9-11 era? And what lessons did you learn there that are applicable today in the training environments now? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So the three surgeons general, there were you know congressional reports that came out of Debtor Shield, Debtor Storm uh, over a period of about a decade, and and the general feeling was that we were lucky not to have big cat number of casualties because we were not prepared to take care of those. Um, the three surgeon generals all signed onto that and asked that we develop a military civilian collaboration at Bentob, and then asked me to, if I could lead that. And I, of course, was happy to do that. What we did was rotate through Army, Navy, and Air Force, essentially forward surgery teams. Each service had a different name for it and a little bit different composition, but they're all actually more similar than different. We rotated 10 teams through each of the two years that we were up and running that program. We had uh, Army, Navy, and Air Force assigned personnel, both officer and enlisted, and an MSC officer, Captain Smythe at the time, who just retired actually two weeks ago as Colonel Smythe from the Air Force. You know, we had a, a very good group of folks. The services put together, put forward really good people, and we trained 20, 22 teams to include some CCAT teams at the end in a very busy, very active civilian trauma center. We did simulation research and published that. We published our uh, experience with training these teams. We did surveys of the teams. And then as it turns out, as we ran around Iraq after the war started, we were able to see some of those teams and talk to them and ask them about their experiences in Ben Tub and they feel it was helpful. And I would say it's not a hundred percent, but but most of the teams felt like that rotation in a busy trauma center helped prepare them better for what they would see on the battlefield. So in 2002, you came back to BAMSI and, and were the commander of the USA ISR, the Institute for Surgical Research. That was right before OEF and OIF really could, took off. What kind of, and we'll get into the, the research things a little bit later, but what kind of clinical cases were you seeing that were war-related during your time as the commander of the ISR? What was coming from the battlefield, and, and how was it different from your practice pre-9-11? Yeah, the ISR in 2002, when I assumed command, the clinical component of the ISR was the burn center. The burn center was not busy at all. The burn center was, you know, all any trauma-related clinical group has to have patients. And the burn center had decreased the number of the patients that they were seeing dramatically. And so it was really not being utilized in the, in the local San Antonio area. A lot of the war kicks off, then all of a sudden we start getting burn patients coming in from you know, the war. I will, I'll tell you a little story for just a minute. I, the General Pete called up in 2001. He goes, hey, I want you to assume command of the ISR. I said, that sounds great, sir. I'd love to do that. Ready to go. Went home and told my wife. And she goes, well, you can do that, but I'm staying here in Houston. <laughs> So the, I had to call General Peak back and say, you know, my wife says no. And he goes, well, how about next year? So she said yes to that. And uh, then I had to find a job to do for a year, right? Because we'd shut down the Ben Tob thing. So that's when I went across the street and General Peak facilitated me doing a critical care fellowship with one month's notice to Army GME, you know, kind of read my lips, right? He, so I did a fellowship 10 years out of training and uh, with Fred Moore at UT and that worked out wonderfully. It was a great, it was almost like a sabbatical. I came with some grants and a tech and gave me an office and I could take care of patients and read about trauma patients for a year in critical care. 
And then uh, my family and I, we had a son at the time, moved back to San Antonio, assumed command of the army. My wife never lets me forget that she was able to tell the Surgeon General no. And he said, okay. <laughs> the, so yeah, this, you know, burn patients started coming in from the war and, and the ISR responded really well. The people there, Lee Cancio is the first guy that I talked to when Pete asked me to assume command. Lee had been a previous burn center director. And, you know, I'm not a burn surgeon taking care of burns, a lot of burns over the years, but that's a specialty in and of itself. And Lee stayed on and, and assumed the burn center director role and, and has, did a fabulous job. But he is still there. He's retired now. He's just one of the persons you should talk to if you haven't. Great guy, very smart, incredible research person, and, and takes great care of burn patients. By the way, is a combat jump into Panama with the 82nd when he was a GMO. So a lot of military background at the ISR, a lot of military influence with a focus, 100% focus on the casualties coming back, both, both military and then, of course, the civilians. We went from uh, almost no admissions, and I think last year they did eight or two years ago, did 800 admissions to the Burns Center. So it's, it's a pretty active place. So you were also chosen as the consultant to the Surgeon General for trauma. And during this time, there were heavy battlefield casualties. What major challenges did you find that you had as the trauma surgery consultant and that the surgical community faced? And how did you innovate to meet the mission of adapting to those challenges? The easy one to think about is clinical care, right? And that the, you know, the injuries are different on the battlefield. I would say the, the harder challenges were administrative. The peacetime army is very different than the wartime army. And conventional military is very different than special operations. So I'd spent a decade with special operations where the answer is always yes. My way of Talking about that is unless the three laws of physics, you know, thermodynamics don't allow it, the answer is going to be yes in the special operations world. And I have a lot of, a lot of examples of that. And again, the conventional military, and it's not always the same way. There's too many people that can say no. And so trying to bring that attitude into the conventional army. And that was pretty easy to do, actually, at the beginning of the war. I would say in the middle and later part of the war, it became much more uh, less, less ability, less flexible, if you will. At the beginning of the war, we were able to do a lot of things very quickly. We took tourniquets to the battlefield and distributed those. We did uh, IND um, study with the fibrinogen dressing. There were a lot of innovations in resuscitation, one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one and whole blood and that sort of thing. The general peak and then subsequently the other certain generals allowed me to, as the trauma consultant to deploy just about whenever I, I felt like it was needed to as a consultant visit to the theater. I went into Iraq five times and two and a half, three years. As an aside, I had my own personnel group at the ISR so I could just write my own orders and sign them. <laughs> I could deploy myself, which was awesome. I kept my TA-50 in the office so I didn't have to go back and forth to CIF. And then the interaction with special operations as well, you know, facilitate a lot of movement to theater and around theater and back and forth. You have been listening to part one of our War Docs interview with retired Army Colonel, Dr. John Holcomb. We hope you get the opportunity to listen to part two of the interview with this true military medical hero on Wardock's podcast when it becomes available. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardock's, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.